The seven I will s of Christ when a man says, I will, it may not mean much. We very often say I will when we don't he mean to fulfill what we say. But when we come to the I will of Christ, he means to fulfill it. Everything he promised to do, he is able and willing to accomplish. I cannot find any scripture where he says I will do this, or I will do that, but that it will be done. 1. The I will of salvation the first I will is to be found in John's Gospel, chapter 6, and verse 37, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. I imagine someone will say, if I were what I ought to be, I would come. But when my mind goes over my past record, it is too dark. I am not fit to come. You must bear in mind that Jesus Christ came to save not good people, not the upright and just, but sinners, like you and me, who have gone astray and sinned and come short of the glory of God. Listen to this I will it goes right into the heart, him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Surely that is broad enough is it not? I don't care who the man or woman is, nor what his or her trials, troubles, sorrows, or sins are, if that one will only come straight to the master, he will not cast him out. Come then, poor sinner, come just, as you are, and take him at his word. So anxious is he to save sinners, that he will take everyone, who comes. He will take those who are so full of sin, that they are despised by all who know them, who have been rejected by their fathers and mothers, who have been cast off by the wives of their bosoms. He will take those who have sunk so low that upon them no eye of pity is cast. His occupation is to hear and save. That is why he left heaven and came into the world, that is why he left the throne of God, to save sinners. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost Luke 19.10. He did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. A wild and prodigal young man running a career headlong to ruin came into one of our meetings in Chicago. The Spirit of God got hold of him. Whilst I was conversing with him and endeavoring to bring him to Christ, I quoted Luke 19.10. Then I asked him, do you believe Christ said that? I suppose he did. Suppose he did. Do you believe it? I hope so. Hope so. Do you believe it? You do your work, and the Lord will do his. Just come, as you are. Throw yourself upon his bosom, and he will not cast you out. This man thought it was too simple and easy. At last, light seemed to break in upon him, and he seemed to find comfort from it. It was past midnight before he got down on his knees, but down he went and was converted. I said, now, don't you think you are going to get out of the devil's territory without trouble? The devil will come to you tomorrow morning and say it was all feeling, that you only imagined you were accepted by God. When he does, don't he fight him with your own opinions, but fight him with John 6.37, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Let that be the sword of the Spirit. I don't he believe any man ever starts to go to Christ, but that the devil strives somehow to trip him up. Even after he has come to Christ, the devil tries to assail him with doubts, and make him believe there is something wrong in it. The struggle came sooner than I thought in this man's case. While he was on his way home. The devil assailed him. He used John 6.37, but the devil put this thought into his mind, how do you know Christ ever said that after all? Perhaps the translators made a mistake. Into darkness he went again till about two in the morning. At last he came to this conclusion, I will believe it anyway, and when I get to heaven, if it isn't he true, I will just tell the Lord I did not make the mistake the translators did. 
when kings and princes of this world issue invitations, they call round them the rich, the mighty, the powerful, the honorable, and the wise. But the Lord, when he was on earth, called round him the vilest of the vile. That was the principal fault the people found with him. Those self-righteous Pharisees were not going to associate with harlots and publicans. The principal charge against Christ was, This man receiveth sinners, and eateth with them. Who would have such a man around him as John Bunyan, in his time? He, a Bedford tinker, couldn't he get inside one of the princely castles? I was very much amused when I was over in England. They had directed a monument to John Bunyan, and it was unveiled by lords and dukes and great men. While he was on earth, they would not have allowed him inside the walls of their castles, yet he was made one of the mightiest instruments in the spread of the gospel. No book that has ever been written comes so near the Bible as John Bunyan as Pilgrim's Progress, and yet the author was a poor Bedford tinker. Thus it is with God. He picks up some poor lost tramp and makes him an instrument to turn hundreds and thousands to Christ. George Whitefield, standing in his tabernacle in London, and with a multitude gathered about him, cried out, The Lord Jesus will save the devil as castaways. Two poor, abandoned wretches standing outside in the street heard his silvery voice ring out on the air. Looking into each other's faces, they said, That must mean you, and me they wept, and rejoiced. They drew near and looked in at the door at the face of the earnest messenger, the tears streaming from his eyes as he pled with the people to give their hearts to God. One of them wrote him a little note and sent it to him. Later that day, as he sat at the table of Lady Huntington, his special friend, someone present said, Mr. Whitefield, did you not go a little too far today, when you said that the Lord would save the devil as castaways? Taking the note from his pocket, he gave it to Lady Huntington. Will you read that note aloud? She read, Mr. Whitefield, two poor lost women stood outside your tabernacle today, and heard you say that the Lord would save the devil as castaways. We seized upon that as our last hope. Now we write to tell you that we rejoice now in believing in him, and from this good hour we shall endeavor to serve him, who has done so much for us. 2. The I will of cleansing the next I will is found in Luke, chapter 5. We read of a leper who came to Christ, and said, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. The Lord touched him, saying, I will, be thou clean, and immediately the leprosy left him. Any man or woman full of the leprosy of sin, who reads this, if you will, but go to the master, and tell all your case to him, he will speak to you as he did to that poor leper, I will, be thou clean, and the leprosy of your sins will flee from you. The Lord and the Lord alone can forgive sins. If you say to him, Lord, I am full of sin, thou canst make me clean Lord, I have a terrible temper. Thou canst make me clean Lord, I have a deceitful heart. Cleanse me, O Lord, give me a new heart. O Lord, give me the power to overcome the flesh and the snares of the devil Lord, I am full of unclean habits. If you come to him, with a sincere spirit, you will hear the voice, I will, be thou clean. It will be done. The God who created the world out of nothing who by a breath put life into the world you think if he says, Thou shalt be clean, you will not be clean. Now, you can make a wonderful exchange today. You can have spiritual health in the place of sinsickness, you can get rid of everything, that is vile and hateful in the sight of God. The Son of God comes down and says, I will take away your leprosy, and give you health in its stead. 
I will take away that terrible sin disease that is ruining your body and soul and give you my righteousness in its stead. I will clothe you with the garments of salvation. Is it not wonderful? That is what he means when he says, I will. Oh, lay hold on this I will. 3. The I will of confession now turn to Matthew 10.32, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven the I will of confession. That is the next thing that takes place, after a man is saved. When we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, we get our mouths opened. We have to confess Christ here in this dark world, and tell his love to others. We are not to be ashamed of the Son of God. A man thinks it a great honor, when he has achieved a victory, that causes his name, to be mentioned in the English Parliament, or in the presence of the Queen, and her court. How excited we used to be during the war, when some general did something extraordinary, and someone got up in Congress, to confess his exploits. How the papers used to talk about it. In China the highest ambition of the successful soldier is to have his name written in the palace or temple of Confucius. But just think of having your name mentioned in the kingdom of heaven by the Prince of Glory, by the Son of God, because you confessed him here on earth. Confess him here, he will confess you yonder. If you wish to be brought into the clear light of liberty, you must take your stand on Christ's side. Many Christians go groping about in darkness, and never get into the clear light of the kingdom, because they are ashamed to confess the Son of God. We are living in a day when men want a religion, without the cross, the crown, but not the cross. But if we are to be disciples of Jesus Christ, we have to take up our crosses daily not once a year, or on the Lord's day, but daily. And if we take up our crosses, and follow him, we shall be blessed in the very act. A newly converted man in New York came to pray with me his burden was that he was afraid to confess Christ. It seemed that down at the bottom of his trunk he had a Bible. He wanted to get it out and read it to the companion with whom he lived but he was ashamed to do it. After he had carried the burden for a whole week, and after a terrible struggle, he made up his mind, I will take my Bible, out tonight and read it. He did. Soon he heard the footsteps of his roommate coming upstairs. His first impulse was to put the Bible away, but then he decided he would face his companion with it in hand. His roommate came and seeing John at his Bible, he said, Are you interested in these things? Yes, John replied. How long has this been? Asked his companion. Exactly a week, he answered. For a whole week I have tried to get out my Bible to read to you, but I have not done so till now. Well, said his friend, it is a strange thing. I was converted on the same night, and I too was ashamed to take my Bible out. You are ashamed to show your Bible, and say, I have lived a godless life for all these years, but I will commence now to live a life of righteousness. You are ashamed to open your Bible, and read that blessed psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You are ashamed to be seen on your knees. No man can be a disciple of Jesus Christ without bearing his cross. A great many want to know how it is Christ has so few disciples whilst Muhammad has so many. The reason is, Muhammad gives no cross to bear. There are so few who will come out to take their stand. I was struck during the Civil War with the fact that there were so many who could go to the cannon's mouth without trembling but who had no courage to take up their Bibles to read them at night. They were ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ which is the power of God unto salvation. 
Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Matt. 10.32.33. 4. The I will of service the next is the I will of service. There are a good many Christians who have been quickened and aroused to say, I want to do some service for Christ. Well, Christ says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. There is no Christian who cannot help to bring someone to the Savior. Christ says, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me and our business is just to lift up Christ. Our Lord said, follow me, Peter, and I will make you a fisher of men, and Peter simply obeyed. On that day of Pentecost we see the result. I doubt if Peter ever caught so many fish in one day, as he did men on that day. It would have broken every net they had on board if they had had to drag up 3,000 fish. I read some time ago of a man who took passage in a stagecoach. There were first, second, and third class passengers. But when he looked into the coach, he saw all the passengers sitting together without distinction. He could not understand it. By and by they came to a hill. The coach stopped. The driver called out, first class passengers keep their seats. Second-class passengers get out and walk. Third-class passengers get behind and push. In the church we have no room for first-class passengers people who think salvation means an easy ride all the way to heaven. We have no room for second-class passengers people who are carried most of the time and who, when they should be showing their faith by their works, go trudging on giving never a thought to helping their fellows along. All church members ought to be third-class passengers ready to dismount and push with the will. John Wesley's definition of a church, all at it and always at it. Every Christian is to be a worker. He need not be a preacher or an evangelist to be useful. He may be useful in business. See what power an employer has with his employees. Often a man can be as useful in a business sphere as in another. There is one reason and a great reason why so many do not succeed at Christian service. I have been asked by a great many good men, why is it we don't have any results? We work hard, pray hard, preach hard, yet the success does not come. I tell them, because you spend all your time mending nets. No wonder you never catch anything. The great matter is to give invitations, and compel sinners to come and us pull the net in, and see if you have caught anything. If you are always mending, and setting the net, you won't catch many fish. Whoever heard of a man is going out to fish and setting his net, then letting it stop there, and never playing it in. Everybody would laugh at such a man as folly. A minister in England came to me one day, and said, I wish you would tell me why we ministers don't succeed better than we do. I brought before him this idea of pulling in the net, you have to pull in your nets. There are many ministers in Manchester, who can preach much better than I can, but I pull in the net. Many people have objections to giving invitations, but tired upon them the importance of offering people the chance to make a decision. The minister said, I never did pull in my net, but I will try next Sunday. He did so, and eight anxious inquirers went into his study. The next Sunday he came down to tell me he had never had such a Sunday, in his life. He had met with marvelous blessing. The next time he drew the net, there were forty. And when he came to see me later, he said to me joyfully, Moody, I have had 800 conversions this last year. It is a great mistake I did not begin earlier to pull in the net. My friends, if you want to catch men, just present the gospel, 
and pull in the net. If you only catch one, it will be something. It may be a little child, but I have known a little child to convert a whole family. You don't know what is in that little dull-headed boy in the inquiry room. He may become a Martin Luther, a reformer, who shall make the world tremble. God uses the weak things of this world to confound them my. God's promises as good as a bank note. And here is one of Christ's promissory notes, if you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Will you not lay hold of the promise, and trust it, and follow him now? If a man preaches the gospel faithfully, he ought to expect results then, and there. It is the privilege of God's children, to reap the fruit of their labor 365 days in the year. Well, but is there not a sowing time as well, as a harvest? You ask. Yes, there is, but then, you can sow with one hand, and reap with the other. What would you think of a farmer, who went on sowing all the year round, and never thought of reaping? I repeat, we want to sow with one hand, and reap with the other. And if we look for the fruit of our labors, we shall see it. I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. We must lift Christ up, then seek men out and bring them to him. You must use the right kind of bait. A good many don't do this, then they wonder why they are not successful. You see them giving up all kinds of entertainment with which to try to catch men. They go the wrong way to work. This perishing world wants Christ and him crucified. There is a void in every man's bosom that wants filling up, and if we only approach him with the right kind of bait, we shall catch him. This poor world needs a savior, and if we are going to be successful in catching men, we must preach Christ crucified not his life only, but his death. And if we are only faithful in doing this, we shall succeed. Why? Because there is his promise. If you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. That promise holds just as good to you, and me, as it did to his disciples, and is as true now, as it was in their time. 5. The I will of comfort the next I will is in John 14 18, I will not leave you comfortless. It is a sweet thought, that Christ has not left us alone in this dark wilderness here below. Although he has gone up on high and taken his seat, by the Father's throne, he has not left us comfortless. In other words, he said, I will not leave you orphans. He did not leave Joseph. When they cast him into prison, God was with him. When Daniel was cast into the den of lions, they had to put the Almighty in with him. They were so bound together that they could not be separated. If we have Christ with us, we can do all things. Let us not be thinking how weak we are. Let us lift up our eyes to him, and think of him, as our elder brother, who has all power given to him in heaven and on earth. He says, Lo, I am with you alway, even unto the end of the world. Some of our children and friends leave us, and it is a very sad hour. But the believer and Christ shall never be separated. He is with us here, and we shall be with him in person by and by. We shall see him in his be. But not only is he with us, but he has sent us the Holy Ghost. Let us honor the Holy Spirit by acknowledging that he is here in our midst. He has power to give sight to the blind, liberty to the captive, and to open the ears of the deaf that they may hear the glorious words of the gospel. 6. The I will of resurrection then there is another I will in John 6.40. It occurs four times, in the chapter, I will raise him up at the last day. I rejoice to think that I have a Savior who has power over death. My blessed Master holds the keys of death and hell. 
I pity the poor unbeliever and infidel who has no hope in the resurrection. But every child of God can open that chapter and read the promise, and his heart leaps within him for joy. The tradesman generally puts the best specimens of his wares in the window to show us the quality of his stock. When Christ was down here, he gave us a specimen of what he could do. He raised three from the dead, that we might know what power he had one, Jairus' daughter, two, the widow's son, and three, Lazarus of Bethany. He raised all three, so every doubt might be swept away from our hearts. How dark and gloomy this world would be if we had no hope in the resurrection. But when we Christians lay our little children down in the grave, it is not without hope. We have seen them in the terrible struggle with death, but there has been one star to illumine the darkness and gloom the thought that though the happy circle has been broken on earth, it shall be completed again in yon world of heavenly light. You who have lost a loved one, rejoice, as you read this I will. Those who have died in Christ shall come forth again by and by. The darkness shall flee away, and the morning light of the resurrection shall dawn upon us it is only a little while, and the voice of him, who has said it shall come, shall be heard in the grave I will raise him up at the last day. Precious promise. Precious I will. I had an unsaved brother for whom I was very anxious. For fourteen long years I tried to lead that brother to the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He was the Benjamin of the family, born a few weeks, after my father's death. When he was seventeen, he had a long run of typhoid fever, and he never fully recovered from it. I did everything I could to bring him to Christ. He was a young man of considerable promise. I know no one who could sit down and discuss against the divinity of Christ like that man. I was not any match for him in argument. But day by day I preached to him as best I knew how. I think I never loved a man on earth as I loved that brother. I never knew what it was to love a father because he died before I remember. Because he was sickly, that drew my love and sympathy toward him, and oh, how my heart yearned for his salvation. After preaching one night, I said, Now, if any of this audience would like to take up his cross and follow Christ, I would like him to rise. I cannot tell you what a thrill of joy filled my soul when that brother of mine arose. It seemed the happiest night of my life. I was full of joy and thankfulness. Afterwards my brother and I worked together for a time. We talked of the gospel. And in the summer we sat upon the hillside and talked of the old home. After a year had passed, I went to Chicago. He was to go with me he bid me goodbye, and I said, Samuel, I will see you in a few days, so I will only say goodbye till then. A few days after, a telegram came saying, Samuel is dead. I traveled a thousand miles to bury him. I got more comfort out of that promise, I will raise him up at the last day, and anything else in the Bible. How it cheered me. How it lighted up my path. As I went into the room and looked upon the lovely face of that brother, how that passage ran through my soul, thy brother shall rise again. Thank God for that promise. It is worth more than the world to me. When we laid him in the grave, it seemed as if I could hear the voice of Jesus Christ saying, Thy brother shall rise again. Blessed promise of the resurrection. Blessed I will. I will raise him up at the last day. 7. The I will of glory now the next I will is in John 17:24. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me, where I am. This was in his last prayer in the guest chamber, on the last night, before he was crucified on Calvary. 
many a believer's countenance begins to light up at the thought that he shall see the king in his be by and by. Yes, there is a glorious day before us in the future. Some think that on the first day we are converted we have everything. To be sure, we get salvation for the past and peace for the present, but there is the glory for the future in store. That is what kept Paul rejoicing. He said, these light afflictions, these few stripes, these few brick bats, and stones that they throw at me, why, the glory that is beyond excels them so much that I count them as nothing, nothing at all, so that I may win Christ. And so, when things go against us, cheer up. Remember, that the night will soon pass away, and the morning will dawn upon us death never comes there. It is banished from that heavenly land. Sickness, pain, and sorrow come not there to mar that grand and glorious home, where we shall be by and by with the Master. God's family will be altogether there. Glorious future, my friends. Yes, glorious day and it may be a great deal nearer than many of us think. During these few days we are here, let us stand steadfast and firm, and by and by we shall be in the unbroken circle, in yon world of light, and have the king, in our midst. Repentance you will find my text tonight in the 17th chapter of Acts, part of the 30th verse, and now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. I have heard a number of complaints about the preaching here in the tabernacle, that repentance has not been touched upon, the fact is that I have never had very great success in preaching upon repentance. When I have preached it people haven't repented. I've had far more success when I've preached Christ's goodness. But tonight I will preach about repentance so you will have no more cause of complaint. I believe in repentance just as much as I believe in the word of God. When John the Baptist came to preach to that Jewish nation his one cry was repent, repent. But when Christ came he changed it to the blood of the Lamb taketh away the sin of the world. I would rather cry the blood of the Lamb taketh away the sin of the world than talk about repentance. And when Christ came we find him saying repent ye, but he soon pointed them to something higher. He told them about the goodness of God. It is the goodness of God that produces repentance. When upon the day of Pentecost they asked what to do to be saved, we find him telling men, repent, every one of you. When Christ sent his disciples out to preach, to buy to, we find the message he gave them to deliver was, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is clearly preached throughout the scriptures. There is a good deal of trouble among people about what repentance really is. If you ask people what it is, they will tell you it is feeling sorry. If you ask a man if he repents, he will tell you, Oh, yes, I generally feel sorry for my sins. That is not repentance. It is something more than feeling sorry. Repentance is turning right about and forsaking sin. I wanted to speak on Sunday about that verse in Isaiah which says, Let the guilty forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. That is what it is. If a man don't turn from his sin he won't be accepted of God, and if righteousness don't produce a turning about, a turning from bad to good, it isn't true righteousness. Unconverted people have got an idea that God is their enemy. Now, let me impress this, and I told you the same thing the other night. God hates sin with a perfect hatred. He will punish sin, wherever he finds it, yet he, at the same time, loves the sinner, and wants him to repent and turn to him. If men will only turn they will find mercy, and find it just the moment they turn to him. You will find men sorry for their misdeeds. Cain, no doubt, was sorry, but that was not true repentance. There is no cry recorded in the scriptures, 
as coming from him, oh my God, oh my God, forgive me there was no repentance in his only feeling sorry. Look at Judas. There is no sign that he turned to God, no sign that he came to Christ asking forgiveness. Yet, probably, he felt sorry. He was, very likely, filled with remorse and despair, but he didn't repent. Repentance is turning to him, who loved us, and gave himself, for us. Look at King Saul, and see the difference between him and King David. David fell as low as Saul and a good deal lower. He fell from a higher pinnacle, but what was the difference between the two? David turned back to God and confessed his sin, and got forgiven. But look at King Saul. There was no repentance there, and God couldn't save him till he repented. You will find, all through the scriptures, where men have repented God has forgiven them. Look at that publican when he went up to pray, he felt his sin so great that he couldn't look up to heaven, all he could do was to smite his heart and cry God forgive me a sinner. There was turning to God, repentance, and that man went down to his home forgiven. Look at that prodigal. His father couldn't forgive him while he was still in a foreign land, and squandering his money in riotous living, but the moment he came home repentant, how soon that father forgave him, how quick he came to meet him with the word of forgiveness. It wouldn't have done any good to forgive the boy while he was in that foreign country unrepentant. He would have despised all favors and blessings from his father. That is the position the sinner stands toward God. He cannot be forgiven and get his blessing until he comes to God repenting of all his sins and asking the blessing. Now, we read in scripture that God deals with us as a father deals with a son. Fathers and mothers, you who have children, let me ask by way of illustration, suppose you go home, and you find that while you have been here your boy has gone to your private drawer and stolen five dollars of your money. You go to him, and say, John, did you take that money? Yes, father, I took that money, he replies. When you hear him saying this without any apparent regret you won't forgive him. Do you want to get at his conscience? Do you know it would do him an injury to forgive him unless he confesses his wrong? Suppose he won't do it. Yes, he says, I stole your money, but I don't think I've done wrong. The mother cannot, the father cannot forgive him, unless he sees he has done wrong, and wants forgiveness. That's the trouble with the sinners in Chicago. They've turned against God, broken his commandments, trampled his law, under their feet, and their sins hang upon them, until they show signs of repentance their sin will remain. But the moment they see their iniquity, and come to God, forgiveness will be given them and their iniquity will be taken out of their way. Said a person to me the other day, it is my sin, that stands between me and Christ. It isn't, I replied, it's your own will. That's what stands between the sinner and forgiveness. Christ will take all your iniquities away if you will. Men are so proud that they won't acknowledge and confess before God. Don't you see on the face of it, if your boy won't repent you cannot forgive him, and how is God going to forgive a sinner, if he don't repent? If he was allowing an unrepentant sinner into his kingdom, there would be war in heaven in 24 hours. You cannot live in a house with a boy who steals everything he can lay his hands on. You would have to banish him from your house. Look at King David with his son Absalom. After he had been sent away he gets his friends to intercede for him to get him back to Jerusalem. They succeeded in getting him back to the city, but someone told the king that he hadn't repented and his father would not see him. 
after he had been in Jerusalem some time, trying his best to get into favor and position again without repentance, he sent a friend, Joab, to the king, and told him to say to his father, Examine me, and if you find no iniquity in me, take me and he was forgiven. But the most foolish thinking David ever did was to forgive that young prince. What was the result? He drove him from the throne. That's what the sinner would do if he got into heaven unrepentant. He would just drive God from the throne, tear the crown from him. No unrepentant sinner can get into the kingdom of heaven. Alas, some people say, I believe in the mercy of God. I don't believe God will allow one to perish. I believe everyone will get to heaven. Look at those antediluvians. Do you think he swept all those sinners, all those men and women who were too wicked to live on earth? Do you believe he swept them all into heaven and left the only righteous man to wade through the flood? Do you think he would do this? And yet many men believe all will go into heaven. The day will come when you will wake up and know that you have been deceived by the devil. No unrepentant sinner will ever get into heaven unless they forsake their sin they cannot enter there. The law of God is very plain on this point, except a man repent. That's the language of scripture. And when this is so plainly set down, why is it that men fold their arms and say, God will take me into heaven anyway? Suppose a governor elected today comes into office in a few months, and he finds a great number of criminals in prison, and he goes, and says, I feel for those prisoners. They cannot stay in jail any longer. Suppose some murders have been committed, and he says, I am tender-hearted, I can't punish those men. And he opens the prison door, and lets them all out. How long would that governor be in his position? These very men who are depending on the mercy of God would be the first to raise their voice against that governor. These men would say, these murders must be punished or society will be imperiled. Life will not be safe and yet they believe in the mercy of God, whether they repent or not. My dear friends, don't go on under that delusion, it is a snare of the devil. I tell you the word of God is true, and it tells us except a man repent there is not one ray of hope held out. May the Spirit of God open your eyes tonight, and show you the truth, let it go into your hearts. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous his thoughts. Now, my friends, repentance is not fear. A great many people say I don't preach up the terrors of religion. I don't want to, don't want to scare men into the kingdom of God. I don't believe in preaching that way. If I did get some in that way they would soon get out. If I wanted to scare men into heaven I would just hold the terror of hell over their heads, and say, go right in but, that's not the way to win men. They don't have any slaves in heaven. They are all sons, and they must accept salvation voluntarily. Terror never brought a man in yet. Look at a vessel tossed upon the billows, and sailors think it is going to the bottom and death is upon them. They fall down on their knees, and you would think they were all converted. They ain't converted, they're only scared. There's no repentance there, and as soon as the storm is over and they get on shore, they are the same as ever. All their terror has left them, they've forgotten it, and they fall into their old habits. How many men have, while lying on a sick bed, and they thought they saw the terrors of death gathering around them, made resolutions to live a new life, if they only get well again, but the moment they get better they forget all about their resolutions. It was only scare with them, that's not what we want to feel. Fear is one thing and repentance is another. True repentance is the Holy Ghost showing sinners their sin. That's what we want. May the Holy Ghost reveal to each one here tonight out of Christ their lost condition, unless they repent.
If God threw Adam out of Eden on account of one sin, how can you expect to get into the heavenly paradise with 10,000? I can imagine someone saying, I haven't got anything to repent of. If you are one of those Pharisees, I can tell you that this sermon will not reach your heart. I would like to find one man who could come up here and say, I have no sin. If I was one of those who thought I had no sin to repent of, I'd never go to church, I would certainly not come up to the tabernacle. But could you find a man walking the streets of Chicago who could say this honestly? I don't believe there's a day passed over my head during the last 20 years, but when night came I found I had some sin to repent of. It is impossible for a man to live without sinning, there are so many things, to draw away the heart and affections of men from God. I feel, as if I ought to be repenting all the time. Is there a man here who can say honestly, I have not got to sin, that I need ask forgiveness for, I haven't one thing to repent of? Some men seem to think, that God has got ten different laws for each of those ten commandments, but if you have been guilty of breaking one you are guilty of breaking all. If a man steals five dollars and another steals five dollar hello, the one is as guilty of theft as the other. A man who has broken one commandment of God is as guilty as he who has broken ten. If a man don't feel this and come to him repentant and turn his face from sin toward God, there is not a ray of hope. Nowhere can you find one ray from Genesis to Revelation. Don't go out of this tabernacle saying, I have nothing to repent. I heard of a man who said he had been converted. A friend asked him if he had repented. No, said he. I never trouble my head about it. My friends, when a man becomes converted the work has to be a little deeper than that. He has to become repentant, and try to atone for what he has done. If he is at war with anyone he has to go and be reconciled to his enemy. If he doesn't his conversion is the work of Satan. When a man turns to God he is made a new creature, a new man. His impulses all the time are guided by love. He loves his enemies and tries to repair all wrong he has done. This is a true sign of conversion. If the sign is not apparent his conversion has never got from his head to his heart. We must be born of the Spirit, hearts must be regenerated, born again. When a man repents and turns to the God of heaven, then the work is deep and thorough. I hope that everyone here tonight will see the necessity of true repentance when they come to God for a blessing, and may the Spirit move you to ask it tonight. I can imagine some of you saying now, am I to repent tonight? My friends, there are only two parties in the world. There has been a great political contest here today, and there have been two sides. We will not know before 48 hours which side has triumphed. There is great interest now to know which side has been the stronger. Now, there are two parties in this world, those for Christ, and those against him, and to change to Christ's party is only moving from the old party to the new. Do you know? that the old party is bad, and the new one is good, and yet you don't change. Suppose I was called to New York tonight, and went down to the Illinois Central Depot, to catch the 10 o'clock train. I go on the train, and a friend should see me, and say, you are on the wrong train for New York. You are on the Burlington train. Oh, no, I say, you are wrong. I asked someone, and he told me this was the right train. Why, this friend replies, I've been in Chicago for 20 years and know that you are on the wrong train and the man talks and at last convinces me but I sit still although I believe I am in the wrong train for New York and I go on to Burlington. If you don't get off the wrong train and get on the right one you will not reach heaven.
If you have not repented, seize your baggage tonight and go to the other train. If a man is not repentant his face is turned away from God, and the moment his face is turned toward God peace and joy follow. There are a great many people hunting after joy, after peace. Dear friends, if you want to find it tonight, just turn to God, and you will get it. You need not hunt for it any longer, only come, and get it. When I was a little boy I remember I tried to catch my shadow. I don't know, if you were ever so foolish, but I remember running after it and trying to get ahead of it. I could not see why the shadow always kept ahead of me once I happened to be racing with my face to the sun, and I looked over my head, and saw my shadow coming back of me, and it kept behind me all the way. It is the same with the sun of righteousness, peace, and joy will go with you while you go with your face toward him, and these people, who are getting at the back of the sun are in darkness all the time. Turn to the light of God and the reflection will flash in your heart. Don't say that God will not forgive you. It is only your will which keeps his forgiveness from you. My sister, I remember, told me her little boy said something naughty one morning when his father said to him, Sammy, go and ask your mother's forgiveness. I won't, replied the child. If you don't ask your mother's forgiveness I'll put you to bed. It was early in the morning before he went to business and the boy didn't think he would do it. He said I won't again. They undressed him and put him to bed. The father came home at noon expecting to find his boy playing about the house. He didn't see him about and asked his wife where he was. In bed still. So he went up to the room and sat down by the bed and said, Sammy, I want you to ask your mother's forgiveness. But the answer was no the father coaxed and begged but could not induce the child to ask forgiveness. The father went away, expecting certainly that when he came home that night the child would have got all over it. At night, however, when he got home he found the little fellow still in bed. He had lain there all day. He went to him and tried to get him to go to his mother, but it was no use. His mother went and was equally unsuccessful. That father and mother could not sleep any that night. They expected every moment to hear the knock at their door by their little son. Now they wanted to forgive the boy. My sister told me it was just as if death had come into their home. She never passed through such a night. In the morning she went to him and said, Now, Sammy, you are going to ask my forgiveness. But the boy turned his face to the wall and wouldn't speak. The father came home at noon and the boy was as stubborn as ever. It looked as though the child was going to conquer. It was for the good of the boy that they didn't want to give him his own way. It is a great deal better for us to submit to God and have our own way. Our own way will lead us to ruin. God's way leads to life everlasting. The father went off to his office and that afternoon my sister went into her son about four o'clock and began to reason with him and after talking for some time she said, Now, Sammy, say mother. Mother, said the boy. Now say four. 4. Now just say give. And the boy repeated give. Me, said the mother. Me, and the little fellow fairly leaped out of bed. I have said it, he cried, take me down to Papa, so that I can say it to him. Oh, sinner, go to him and ask his forgiveness. This is repentance. It is coming in with a broken heart and asking the King of Heaven to forgive you. Don't say you can't. It is a lie. It is your stubborn will. It is your stubborn heart. 
Now let me say here tonight you are in a position to be reconciled to God now. You are not in a position to deny this reconciliation a week, a day, an hour. God tells you now. Look at that beautiful steamer Atlantic. There she is in the bay groping her way along a rocky coast. The captain don't know, as his vessel plows through that ocean, that in a few moments it will strike a rock and hundreds of those on board will perish in a watery grave. If he knew, in a minute he could strike a bell, and the steamer would be earned from that rock, and the people would be saved. The vessel has struck, but he knows now too late. You have time now. In five minutes, for all you, and I know, you may be in eternity. God hangs a mist over our eyes, as to our summons. So now God calls, now everyone repent, and all your sins will be taken from you. I have come in the name of the Master, to ask you to turn to God now. May God help you to turn and live. Let us pray.